Welcome to SKUcast, the podcast for entrepreneurs in the promotional products industry. SKUcast shines a light on our industry's best work, features maverick personalities, and discusses what's really involved in running a modern promotional products business. SKUcast is the official podcast of Common SKU. Most companies go broke when they're growing too fast, not when they're shrinking. It's a common misconception that companies go out of business when they're shrinking. They really go out of business when they've outstripped their supply lines. It's like the general and his force is getting too far ahead of the supply lines. He's out of ammunition. He's out of food. He's stalled out, and the enemy can now overrun him. Because we are proudly a sales-driven industry, we frequently talk about the top line, gross sales, but we rarely talk publicly about the finance side of the business, the numbers the critical issues of a healthy bottom line and the physical health and well-being of our companies. Our guest today is Rod Brown, CFO of Made to Order, a distributor based out of the Bay Area. Rod began his promotional products career with Jack Nadell, where he was promoted to the management team and then hired away by Idea Man. Rod then helped launch the Harwood Company and helped them grow from 800000 to $13 million. Today, Made to Order is a $25 million distributor and a recognized leader serving major clients in the Fortune 1000. SKUcast is brought to you by CommonSKU, an effortless business management platform that empowers you to process more orders and handle more business. For your free trial, visit commonsku.com. In today's episode, we chat with Rod about margins, profit, good debt and bad debt, average order size, risk, and we kick it off by talking about financing. Let's start with the basics. How do most distributors finance their business? What are some of the pitfalls and what are your recommendations? It sort of depends on the, the, the life stage of the business. I mean, I can sort of relate my own story and I think it's probably fairly similar to others is that, you know, when I first started off, it was me alone in an office with a coffee pot and some talk radio in the background because I didn't want anybody right. to think that I worked in an empty office. And that was funded really with <laughs> you know, credit cards, a second home loan mortgage. And, and so it really is a patchwork quilt of uh, courtesy checks and credit cards and personal savings uh, to, to sort of get your company launched. So that's your early lifestyle, you know, funding in, in, in your life. And, and that then, you know, should allow you good fiscal responsibility and fiscal management, you know, to begin to have retained earnings. Now, it takes a while to get, but, you know, eventually you then have to plow the money that you earn back into the business. And um, what I'll tell you is it was probably at least three years before I even got back to an income that I had before I started my company. Hmm. Um, And then it was probably five years before I fully paid myself back. You know, so it does take some time. And particularly in your early lifestyle, early life stages of your company, um, you know, that funding is pretty much all self-funded. Rarely are you going to be able to really uh, go borrow money against a brand new business. You're going to be leveraging other assets to fund that business, Bobby. Are there missteps in those first one to three year period where you're building your business and you're a solo entrepreneur or you maybe you've grown to two or three folks? Are there some serious financial missteps you can make? You know, the first one is is that you, you spend more money than, than, than you're making. Um, and the other one is, is that really you have to go into the, uh, the idea of being an entrepreneur and being a small business owner is that you are actually going to make less money than you are making working for somebody else for probably years. It will take you probably two or three years 
to really make the same money that you were making before, at least in terms of spendable money. You, you, you may be able to sort of return a, a, a non-cash profit in your business, but you've got to be pumping that money back into your business, back into your business. You've got to be funding accounts receivable. So you have to go into it with a really long-term projection. This is not just all of a sudden I'm going to make a whole lot more money because I'm, I'm not giving up my cut to the house, you know. You are the house. Um, the biggest thing I would say is the mistake early on is that people manage out of their checkbook. They think, okay, I got a lot of money in the bank right now. Therefore, I can spend more money. I can go do things. I can get a new car or whatever it is I want to do. No, you can't. You have to live incredibly frugally and really pay attention to your, your balance sheet and your income statement. Can you explain the distinctions for, for brand new entrepreneurs? Can you explain the distinctions between those and then what are those particular numbers you should always be observing? So there's, there's really two things. The income statement really is a, is a measure over a period of time of how well you're doing. That is your, you know, your profit and loss statement or your income statement. That sort of says how much did you sell, what was your gross margin, what were your operating expenses, and what's your bottom line, right? And, and don't, don't kid yourself, but... Uh, there's a quote that I learned from Bob Waldorf at Idea Men decades ago. I worked for him for a long time. Businesses are built on profits, so it's your bottom line. It's not your top line. It's not yeah. your revenue number that matters. It's your bottom line number that matters. That's what you use to build your business, right? So that's a measure over a period of time, measures over a month, measures over a quarter or over a year. Frequently on that P&L, a month we would be in ours religiously, yeah. and then once a quarter was a clearer picture. How did you use the PL? How do you use it now? How did you use it then? Obviously, every month I'm looking for a quick close on the month and, and see what does that PL tell me about the month. But I pay more. But the quarter is a, a little more balanced uh, measure of what can happen. The monthly can have some wild swings depending on you know, billing cycles or, or just how the, the timing of an order fell. Uh, fell. Um, and so, you know, critical to be paying attention to the monthly, but quarterly really is, is a much better vision, a more rounded vision of sort of where you're doing. And so I try to compare quarter on quarter results um, and, and make sure that, that we, you know, we're trending in the right direction. Now, how does that quarterly impact decision making going down the road? And let's talk about the very early life cycle of your business. When I say early life cycle, this is the first one or two years you're, you're a million-dollar company. You know, you are really the primary sales driver of your company. You, you may not even have any sales employees, right? But So really what you've got to be looking at here is what I would call is a, you know, a, you know, a trailing 12 number, right? And when I say trailing 12, what's your trailing 12 months look like now? You know, so that is that is that trend line going up on your profit on your your net profits is that trend line going up on your sales volume what does your expense line look like over a trailing 12 graph the expense line against your top line against your bottom line and say are these moving in reasonable progression or is your expense line growing faster than your top line revenue is and then you look for you know this is kind of like the uh you know, the dashboard of your car, you can't just look at the speedometer. You have to look at the tachometer. You got to look at the oil pressure. You got to look at the amp meter. You got to pay attention to all different kinds of metrics. And the key ones to me would be what's your, you know, your, your, over a trailing 12 months. That is, when I say trailing 12 months, it means you're always taking the most current month and adding it in, and you're taking the 12th month and dropping it off. And then you can graph 
very quickly and easily, really quickly and easily, what's your top line revenue looking like, what's your expense line looking like, what's your gross profit margin looking like, and what's your net margin looking like. And just pay attention to those lines and sort of see what is it telling you about the growth of either that expense side of the equation, the sales side of the equation. You know, they, they have to be moving in some sort of linear progression or, or hopefully even an improving progression over a period of time. Uh, you know, so that's one of the things I look at. Then, then in your second sort of stages of your, your, your business, I, I would definitely be continuing to be doing that. But the, the other thing I'd start to add is when you start adding employees is that what's your revenue per employee, what's your gross margin per employee, hmm. you know, right? And just look at your headcount, yeah. right? If you're not generating, you know, two, three, four hundred thousand dollars, you know, a year in, in, in revenue for each employee you're hiring, then you're fooling yourself that that you're going to make any money, right? You you got to be you know when you when you start getting to 50 employees, you got to be looking at what's your revenue per employee, what's your gross margin per employee, and then you start getting into looking at the number of transactions per employee that you're processing. You uh, come up with any figures in terms of what what gross sales should look like per employee? I mean that's a nebulous question gross profit it, or there, is there anything there, you there's not there, it, each each company the structures are a little bit different um yeah you know i think that we you know and and depending if you've got some sort of proprietary platforms depending on what gross margins you're paying out you know uh, on commissions to people there are a number of different issues but you know, you know, I would say that, it, and depending on the your average wage that you're paying for those employees, and I'm mostly talking about your back office staff now because that's where your fixed overhead is, not with your commission salespeople. But you know, I would say that it's you know for us it's in the two hundred and fifty thousand dollar realm, three hundred thousand dollar realm per employee. If we can't generate that kind of business per employee, and we look at that number. And we say, is that number growing or diminishing? If it's growing, it means that it's a signal that we're getting more efficient at processing our transactions because we're handling more revenue, more uh, transactions per employee rather than less. Right? So it's just right. something you really want to be looking at, that you're not just hiring people to make you coffee and wash your car. Right? You've got to be demanding that they're really productive. And then you can begin to build some modest incentive programs um, or bonus programs around some of those met key metrics. Balance sheet is really probably the most important document, particularly when you get to be a mid-size distributor. And mid-size to me is sort of that, that uh, you know, three to five million, three to seven million dollar mid-size distributor right. thing. This becomes really, really crucial is that many distributors don't pay attention to the balance sheet. The balance sheet is a slice in time rather than a, than measuring over a period of time. The balance sheet is a slice in time. It is at the point that that balance sheet is produced. And there you really got to be looking at some key metrics. And and one of those is, you know, you know, what's your, you know, your current ratio, your current ratio is your, your cash, your inventory, your work in process, your accounts receivable against your current liabilities. And you've got to make sure that you probably keep that in like a you know, a 1.25 to 1.5 to 1 ratio, and you've got to be really making sure that you've got the the liquidity, the cash liquidity to survive what I call a margin call, right? And so that's yeah. where a balance sheet is really, really critical to, to keeping your company alive. And I think that it's often neglected, right? They're only looking at the sales point or they're looking at the revenue statement. 
their income statement. And, and yeah, it's critical, but, but, but if your income statement is great and you're taking all the money out of the company and you're leaving your company anemic and you have a weak balance sheet, then, then, then it's a house of straw. You know, you can really get you can really get blown over, or you can get what we call a margin call. Often, are you in your balance sheet monthly? You know, monthly. I'm looking at the balance sheet. It's really it's a closing document, and and uh, I'm looking for you know steady improvement on that balance sheet. Um, you know, we're a much more mature company now. We don't need any more cash in the company. So now I look at a cash utilization. If we have too much cash in the company, we're distributing it that out to the partners or the shareholders, uh, you know, or we're bonusing the staff because I don't have a need for that much cash in the company anymore because we no longer really borrow any money to speak yeah. of. Yeah. If you're in the first first year to three year to five year phase, that could be, you could be living in your balance sheet every year. You're every living week, in right? your balance sheet, right. And, 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 and this goes all the way back to the initial stages. One of the recommendations I would make is that I went out to lunch with my with my uh, banker. It was like a, you know a junior assistant branch manager or something. With my banker, when I was quitting my job, you know the guy that had helped me finance my car, the guy that had helped me you know with my home loans or whatever. And I went out to lunch with him. And I said, "Look, I'm starting my own company, right? I need you to be aware of it. Here's the plan. Here's kind of what we're thinking. Here's a one-page sort of draft of what I see as my revenue target, my profitability target, and I'm going to come to you." And I'm going to, I want to want help. I'm going to want a partner in this, right? And you have to tell me what it is I need to deliver for you in order for you to be my partner. Mm, I'm good. sketching this out for you right now, right? But, but I, and I'm not even looking for the money today. But in, you know, the months ahead and the years ahead, I need a banking partner. I want you to be that partner. So you tell me what metrics I need to be hitting in order for you to be lending to me. That's very wise. Okay. And, and I really try to get in touch with my banker. And then I keep my banker updated. I send him my reports every single month, whether I need to borrow money or not, because I never know when I got to pick up the phone and I need a million bucks tomorrow. Let's talk about debt for a minute. When you and I were on a call, you mentioned good debt and bad debt. Can you explain the difference? You also said there was such a thing as cheap debt. Well, cheap debt really is, you know, if you've got a strong balance sheet, right, you've got, a, you've got a good banking partner, you can be borrowing money at, you know, 50 basis points over LIBOR or, you know, even prime money right now. Um, and that's really cheap debt. I mean, you know, shoot, I think we're paying, you know, three and a half percent or something for our money, four percent for, for our borrowed money. I mean, that's really, that, that's, that's good debt, but it's only good if you're using it to truly finance your, you know, your accounts receivable, your work in process, you're using it to finance your business. If you're taking that out and you're leaving yourself a leveraged balance sheet, you're taking the cash out because, hey, borrowing is cheap. I can just take my money out of the company and spend it. Then, then that's not a good idea because you're leaving yourself with a weakened balance sheet. So I even mm-hmm. leave a fair amount of cash and, uh, and I often have more cash in the bank than, uh, than the amounts that we're borrowing. I keep borrowing just to make sure I keep that pipeline well greased and I can put that money to work. But, but we have a very strong balance sheet to be borrowing us. Now, it, the, the bad debt is where you're kidding yourself and you start tendering uh, accounts receivable to a factor and you're paying 22% or 24% or effective rates for, for this debt, I mean, that's crushing debt. I would say that, that, that that's a real sign of, uh, of trouble in your company. And if you're borrowing it at that rate, you know, then that's a really bad sign, right? So 
you have, you know, debt is a wonderful tool. It's, you know, part of the basic building blocks of the capitalist economy. It's a wonderful tool, but it's only a tool if you use it wisely and you're borrowing efficiently and you're borrowing for the right reasons. And again, keep your borrower really informed, right? Never hide from your bank or your borrower. Be telling them, here's what I'm borrowing for. Here's where the money's going. Here's what it looks like. Give me your feedback. What I really liked about that story with the banker is that, you know, people are people and people make decisions. People make decisions emotionally and justify them rationally. Even your banker who's, who looks at numbers all day, uh, that's it's going to impact that relationship, that constant communication, that TLC. You're turning them into a partner, even just emotionally. Let's step back a minute and talk about cash flow. When it comes to cash flow, are there a couple of secrets or points that you can help folks out with? First one is, is that I, you know, I, I had... You know, over my lifetime, I probably have, you know, 30 or 40 or 50 distributors that over, over the period of time that have come through here, you know, seeking out a, you know, a, a deal, an opportunity, a, you know, whatever, a, you know, an acquisition. And many, many, many of them sort of said, well, I just have a cash flow problem. And I look at them and I think, you don't have a cash flow problem. You have a spending problem. It really is not that. You, you, you know, you've been in business for 10 years. And you've taken all the money out of the company and you've lived a, a robust lifestyle and you don't have, you know, the, you know, the, the, you know, the wood stacked up for the winter, man. You, you, you know, you haven't built up enough cash reserves to be able to handle cash flow. You haven't got a lending relationship in place, the trusted long-term lending relationship in place with enough headroom in your borrowing that you can manage a cash flow problem, right? So... Cash flow is generally caused from, well, let, let's, let's say that it's not a spending problem. Let's say that it's a genuine cash flow problem. A genuine cash flow problem is that you have huge, unusual opportunity for deals, right? There's just some, some really business is just tremendous, right? And you need money to finance the, those orders and finance that accounts receivable. Well, the, the absolute cheapest and easiest debt is your trade credits. So I would say engage with your trade partners and make sure that they're informed, you know, that they're, they understand what's going on in your company. Brief them on your company. You know, consider even sharing your financial statements with some of your well-trusted big-time vendors because that's free money. You know, and that 45-day terms can be incredibly valuable to you if you use it wisely. To get real granular on that for a minute, you could actually, when you have a big deal, and you've probably done this so many times in your career, you will engage your vendor partner, your supplier partner, and talk with them about the deal and talk through financial arrangements because it's good for both of you. Yeah, and I would say that we try to make sure that you know our top three, four, five vendor relationships are really key vendor relationships. Shoot, you know, we've been talking to them before anything ever hits the horizon. It's what it says, what if? Well, what, what if this were to happen? What if this were to happen to you, you know? How could we work through those opportunities? Because I'd like to be able to chase those opportunities, but I don't want to chase them if there's no hope that, that we could come up with a, with a solution on this, right? And then if an opportunity does arise, we've already sort of set the stage for we're ready to have a dialogue about that. By the way, you're one of the few distributor, you're one of the few distributors I know that brings your top suppliers, flies them in for a big dinner just to celebrate and thank them for the work that they do. Yeah, we call it sort of the, the People's Choice Award because 
um, what we do is we actually pull every employee, I mean, even the billing clerk, the warehouse guys, you know, everybody in the company, which, and we're not a huge company, you know, we're sub 50 people, um, you know, but, but everybody gets a vote for really who is their, their, you know, their top, you know, their top five picks for supplier partners because sometimes the salespeople, and they're probably, you know, the most important relationship with the salespeople, but if the, if the supplier partner can't bill us correctly or they're shipping to the wrong address or you know, all kinds of other things can happen, then they're going to get voted down. So then we fly them in for a big five-star banquet. We pick, take our top ten vendors and we award them and we honor them and we, you know, we, we bring them in for a banquet and have a good time. Um, and, and uh, again, it's not really based only on revenue. It's based on, on the People's Choice Awards of who they feel like you know, has really helped them throughout the year in terms of doing their job. That's awesome. So uh, l- let me ask you this, and I'll, I'll ask it in two different ways. Uh, one is calculated risk versus outrageous risk. What's the difference? And then in, in a similar question, how does a distributor grow, not in a reckless way, but in a methodical way? So when do you know it's time to risk more money to invest back in oh, your business? Boy. You know, I have two sons that are now 21 and 25, and they're, you know, they're, they're outrageous you know, adventurers and mountain climbers and motorcycle guys and everything and I, I, I tell them that they've got to listen to their heart and their mind because there is a very fine inflection point between recklessness and adventure and adventure is fabulous and recklessness is that it's dangerous and it's wrong and you've got to really listen to both your heart and your mind at the same time and I would say that that's sort of true in business too I mean this is really the secret sauce is that really begin to think through is this opportunity, it's not necessarily a deal or, or a client, but is this worth risking everything for, right? Just because it's big, what is your risk assessment? You've got to go down, what's the credit risk assessment? What's the vendor risk assessment? Because, you know, if, if, if you're at a 30% margin on a you know, million dollar deal and you're a $2 million distributor and then you got to put the money up for a, you know, an unknown vendor in China um, and, and you have, you know, you're selling it to Joe's Bar and Grill, but oh my God, it's a million dollar deal at 30%. That is outrageous risk. I would not do that, right? Now, and, mm. and that may be an extreme level, so we have to dial that down a little bit. But the point is, is that there's there are multiple risks assessments on every client on every vendor on every order right and and you have to have an acceptable amount of risk and that is again sort of personal learning and personal secret sauce what's the size of your company what's your ability to take a hit we had a hit two years ago a year and a half ago for three hundred thousand dollars right we Mm. had sold to a casino $300,000 $300,000 worth of business, and, and they, they defaulted on that and did not pay us. Three hundred grand. Mm. That was a shock to the system, but we, we knew that we were big enough to be able to take the hit. I had some sleepless nights, believe me, and it cost a lot of money, but, but we're big yeah. enough to take that hit. If you're not big enough to take the hit, don't take the risk. It's one of the toughest. You know, what I've found, Rod, is, is that you take those kinds of risks when you have nothing else in your pipeline. Mm-hmm. Um, and so by not having additional business opportunities in your pipeline, I've seen this with reps. They'll, they'll come. They, maybe their sales have, have declined. 
um, and they'll get an interesting opportunity. Interesting is not a good word for it, but they'll get a risky opportunity. It's low margin. It's with an unknown vendor, but they don't have anything else in their pipeline. So they're so desperate to say yes to it, but the house has to say no. And it's really tough to say no, but you only learn how to say no with confidence, really with experience, I think. Yeah, and I think that, you know, what we what we try to do is we try to never say no. We try to say maybe, and we try and educate that sales partner on what's going on and what's the risk assessment on this, right? And again, there's vendor risk, there's client risk, right? So you you got to assess both. If I've got a AAA vendor, you know, um, then, then I'm much happier about the deal. I've at least mitigated that side of the equation, right? Yeah. Then, then I look at the client risk, and I sort of said, okay, what's the risk here? And then I looked at the sales partner, and I said, look, you are not risking anything here, right? Um, and and I, I, I love you, and you're a terrific person, and I understand what's going on here, and I'd like to try and come up with an answer here, but the risk is so significant that we would only do this deal, and we will pay you if everything works out, and, and here's the structure of that payout. You know, you know, we're gonna we're gonna go look at the thing and sort of said, okay, is there some way that we can get to yes? Now, the other thing that we might want to do is we may want to sort of take and um, one of the things that we've done here is that we have uh, gone out and we bought credit insurance. I want to tell you that we had bought it before the three hundred thousand dollar default. We bought it afterwards, which is classic failure in business. By by the way. Uh, and so, you know, we now spend $30,000 a year for a credit insurance policy um, that will help us mitigate that, that client-side risk. Um, got off on a little bit of a tangent there. But, but the yeah. point is that you're always looking at ways to say yes if you can. But in the end, you've got to have the, you know, you've got to have the fortitude to say, we, you know, I'd love to do this. It's just not worth the risk. Let me ask you this. Uh, and this is probably more intuition and gut than it is anything else. But how do you know when it's time to invest? I mean, for, for many entrepreneurs that are in this um, one million, they've hit one million or they're in the one to three million range or they're, they're somewhere in that category. Knowing when to take that calculated risk and invest in people and sales reps back into your business. thing at some level is contextual. What's the size of your company? What's the makeup of your company? Where are you in your company's life? You know, how strong are you, right? And there's a number of things that you look at, right? But uh, one of the things I would say is that is have some kind of a sketchy sort of three to five year plan, right? What, what do you, where do you want to be in three to five years realistically, right? And then sort of set up those, uh, those, 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 those targets and somewhat work backwards from that, right? And build yourself you know, an Excel little pro forma at least, you know, and populate that with, with a, you know, maybe, you know, 50 line items and, uh, you know, 50 rows and, and then sketch it out over the, you know, the, 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 the two dozen quarters or whatever it is to get out there, you know, and, and put in some quarterly numbers, right? And then say, okay, what I know about my business today, right? What am I going to need, right? Do I need to move to a new building at some point in time to achieve that? Can I do it in the same square footage I've got? Okay, how many back office people do I need to support that business? If I take my metric right now, of you know, I've got $250,000 per head of revenue, right? If I can improve that to 300000 
then how many bodies am I going to need? Then if I can prove it to 325, how many bodies am I going to need and map it out? Build yourself at least a little bit of a, a, a sort of a three to five year plan. Five years may be really hard to look at, but you know, get to three anyway. Look three years out and say, where do you want to be? And then you're going to, then you're, you're essentially going to, to then map out very briefly, okay, what's the cash flow look like if I'm growing those sales at this rate? What is that generating a gross margin? What is that kickoff in terms of net margin? And do, how much do I need to increase my borrowing? And where do I need to increase my borrowing? And where am I going to spend that money? And engage with your banker on that. It doesn't have to be, you know, an incredible piece of work. You just get in there and do it and then come back to it in a week and another week later. You'll have something, you know, that you, you, you begin to tell yourself a, a story and make a plan and say, okay, now I, I want to kick, I want to goose that. You're into it a year. I want to goose that. I think I can do better. All right. That's going to tell you, okay, what do you need to invest and where do you need to invest it? Because... If you're going to grow at more than, and I'm going to pull the numbers out of my ass, Bobby, but, you know, something just, you know, in the realm of maybe 20% a year and say top line revenue, you know, and you're a, you're a three to $5 million company. So, you know, then, then you have to sort of said, is, is my net cash going to be able to support that growth? And I would say maybe you can support 20%. Any more than that, it's unlikely that the cash that you kick off from your business will be able to support the growth much greater than that, which there go means that you're going to have to get financing if you're going to grow more than that, right? Um, you know, so really pay attention. Okay, I'm going to add a, I'm going to, look, I've got a, there's a great, you know, $600,000 a year sales guy that wants to come on board. Okay, plug it in. What's that going to cost you? That's going to cost you money. You're going to have to invest, you know. That's not going to kick off money. That's going to cost you money for, you know, a, a long period of time before, you know, it really kicks off cash. It can kick off, kick off income, but it's not going to kick off cash. Yeah, right? that's a good you know? point. So and if you, you hire two or three of those people and you have not made a plan to digest them and you do not have a lending relationship in place that has some headroom or some expansion capability then you're going to you're going to get hurt and most companies go broke when they're growing too fast not when they're shrinking right it, it's a common misconception that companies go out of business when they're shrinking they really go out of business when they've outstripped their supply lines it's like the general and his forces getting too far ahead of the supply lines he's out of ammunition he's out of food he's stalled out and the enemy can now overrun him yeah you know you got to be really careful so make a plan Sketch it out with numbers, with headcount, measuring metrics, right? And again, I, 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 wanna, I don't want people to think like I gotta take you know, a five-year course in, in finance to do this. It's really sitting down for hours at a time with a spreadsheet and thinking and thinking and thinking and building and building and building, coming back to it, testing it, then engage with your, your lender and sort of said, what do you think on that? That's awesome. So Rod, average margins in this business, what do you think is a healthy margin? And then what, what is your opinion of the commission structures that are in place now and how they change for the future? A healthy margin is more than we're getting now. How's that? <laughs> for, from my standpoint, margins have shrunk probably in my lifetime, you know, six, seven, eight percent from where we operated, you know, yeah. 30 years ago. 
um, you know, the web has driven down that um, transparency, driven down any number of things. But I would say that in a classic, you know, promotional products distributor company that anything if you if you if you don't if you're operating below a 30 percent gross margin you're in trouble you know i i think that you know you can get by at, at 31 32 you can run a healthy business 33 percent but but if your gross margin is dipping below 30 then i'd really want to lay back pull back the covers and say okay then what is your comp plan looking like what are your expenses looking like where are you operating What's your average transaction size? If your average transaction size is thirty, you know, it's thirty thousand dollars or forty thousand dollars. Okay, fine, maybe, but ours average is probably a thousand dollars, right? Um, you know, so there are a number of things that you have to overlay on. So there's not a magic number, but I would say if there was anything below thirty percent, gets into the danger zone in, in, in you know, a classic classic business model. That average order is an often overlooked metric in the business, and yet it is yeah. critical because it tells you about your operating burden. It tells you so much about your business. In this industry, I think the typical average in the print industries, it was something like three, four, five hundred $500, but in the promo industry, I think the average was $700,000, somewhere around there per per. I mean, you give me give me a hundred thousand dollar clean order with a triple A vendor partner and a triple A long term publicly traded customer and you do that deal at 20%, you know, I'll take that order. Right. Yeah. If, you, if, if I've got to do it, you know, an unknown Chinese import, I got to put up a hundred percent of the money and I'm selling the Joe's bar and grill. It's a hundred thousand dollar order, 50%. I'm probably going to pass on that order. Right. right? You know, <laughs> That's awesome. Okay. Right. So, I mean, you just have to really, really look at uh, you know, what's going on now, again, you know, conversely, I got a, a $200 order and it's at 50% gross margin. I'm thinking, well, I'll do it, but, but I'm doing it because it's an accommodation to a good customer. Right. Rod, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you taking your time to visit with us, particularly you've always been willing to be vulnerable and open with advice. And if, um, if you don't know Rod, I encourage you to get to know him. And Rod is one of the most open and uh, generous people I know. So uh, if you happen to listen to this podcast and seek him out, give him a shout next time you're at a show. I'm sure he'd love to talk with you. Rod, any final thoughts? No, Bobby, just appreciate the friendship and um, I hope somebody finds it entertaining at least, you know. Yeah. <laughs> it, it's incredibly informative, Rod. Thanks for your time. We really appreciate you. All right, buddy. Take care, man. Thanks so much for tuning into this episode of SKUcast. Be sure to keep up with our latest content by subscribing to SKUcast on iTunes or to our blog at community.commonskew.com. Until next time, friends. Thanks so much for listening. Thank you.